Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to come together as Dan prayed this morning for the singular purpose of coming to worship you. Lord, we know that that involves quite a bit in worshiping you in our praise and our singing. Lord, worshiping you in our prayer and our study. Lord, worshiping you in the fellowship of Christian unity. And we thank you for all of it. Uh, now, Lord, as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak through me this morning. Um, Lord, that you would deliver a word that you've already begun to prepare our hearts to hear this morning. Uh, so I thank you. I turn this now over to you and step aside. And in your name we pray. Amen. Last week in chapter 11 was a big chapter. We covered a lot of material. There's a couple of points in there that just really stuck with me this week. And there, there's some important things. We saw John the Baptist um, in prison. He's been in prison for a year. And his circumstances of being in prison for a year begin to cause doubt to creep into his life about who Jesus is. Remember, he sends two guys to Jesus saying, are you the one that we should be waiting for or is there another? And we looked at the fact that John, because of his circumstances, was beginning to have some fear about the future. You know, he, he was the guy that knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He announced him. He said, there he is. There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You would think that, that John the Baptist would never have any doubts, but his circumstances of being in prison saying, how come Jesus isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing? And by the way, how come I'm still in prison? It's been a year. I'm his cousin. But his circumstances begin to cause some fear about the future. That never happens to any of us, right? Only John the Baptist has allowed circumstances to cause fear about the future. No, that's silly. Many of us have faced fears about the future, doubts about what God we thought had the direction that he had us on. Jesus answers John in a pretty unique and very important way. Number one, he says, John, look to the scriptures that you know are true. He says, go and tell John that the blind, are, the blind can see, the, the sick are being healed, the lame are being cleansed, the, the, the dead are being raised. Jesus quotes Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah and then connects it to the things that he's done that they've seen. And he goes, go back and tell John these things that were prophesied about the one to come have taken place through me. In fact, what he says is, go back and tell John that you know the answer to your question. It's in the word that you know. And in our times of fear about the future, because of our circumstances, Jesus says the same thing. You know the answer. You know the answer to your fear. You know the answer to the doubt. It's in the word which you have right in front of you. And if you need one to go on, here you go. Jeremiah 29, 11. You know that one? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. To prosper you and to not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Hold on to that one. 
You start having fear and doubt about the future and you don't know. Remember we talked about, I don't know where to turn in the word. There's your one club to put in your bag to start off with. Jeremiah 29, 11. Hold on to that one. The Lord says, I know the plans I have for you. Here's the issue. We don't know the plans that the Lord knows that he has for us. Does that make sense? That made sense, Denise. Okay. So what do we do? Trust in the Lord. Here's another one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will what? Direct your path. Which way do I go, Lord? I don't know. I'm just going to trust in you with all my heart. There's another club for your bag. Those two. Start with those two. That pretty much takes care of everything, doesn't it? Takes care of all the fear of the future. Hebrews, 20, uh, Hebrews 2, 1, it says this, reminds, it, it reminds us of this. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away. Again, Jesus is, uh, or the author of Hebrews is reminding us that we need to pay closer attention to what we know to be true, because if we don't, what will happen? We drift we drift away. Do you know that we sing about, you know, putting in an anchor and when there's a storm, you put in an anchor so you don't drift away. And that all makes sense to me because when there's a storm, the water's really rough and your boat might go floating away. So you put an anchor so you'll stay in place. But have you ever, ever gone fishing on really calm waters? What happens if you don't put an anchor on in really calm waters? You still drift away. Even when it's not stormy, if you don't have an anchor, you will drift away. Put your anchor in, put your anchor in Jesus. That's what he says. Again, Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of the hope within, without wavering, for he who promised it is faithful. Oh man, there's your anchor. That's your anchor right there. Finally, in that section, Jesus reminds John that he is the Messiah, not because he fulfilled John's expectation of what he was supposed to do, but because he fulfilled the Father's will as it was written in the Word. Jesus says, I'm not your Savior because I did what you think I should do. I am your Savior because I did what the Father has called me to do, and you believe it. That's why I'm your Savior. Oh, man. Darn it. Wait, you mean Jesus isn't here just to do whatever I want him to do? Don't I just have to say anything I want and then say, in Jesus' name? <laughs> it doesn't work like that, gang. Those guys go with that incredible message to see John, and he then turns to the crowd and says to them, because they're starting to wonder, like, maybe John wasn't as great as we thought he was. I thought John was a pretty great prophet, and here Jesus just kind of, like, corrected him. He was doubting, and Jesus turns to the crowd and he goes, let me just remind you that there is born of women, no man, no prophet, greater than John the Baptist. And, and how could that be? Remember last week, we talked about, what about Moses? What about Samuel? What about David? Those guys were pretty great prophets in their own time as well. And Jesus would say, no, John the Baptist is still greater. Why? Not because he was a better guy but because every prophet before John would say, there is one coming. And John could say, there is one coming. That's him right there. It's that guy. It's Jesus. But then Jesus goes on to say something incredibly profound. And he says, but those who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater even than John. What? John, you just said, Jesus, 
that John was the greatest of anyone born of women. Is there anyone here not born of a woman? We have no test tube babies in the audience. He says, even the person who has been saved one day is greater than John the Baptist. How can that be? Because in the same way that John had a fuller understanding of the redemption that God offered humanity through Jesus, we have the full understanding because we know that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and then rose from the dead, defeating death and paying for all sin. John did not get to see that. So his understanding was incomplete. Ours is full. Even, the, even if you were saved yesterday afternoon in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says you're greater than John because you understand that Jesus died, defeated death, and rose from the grave. Amen? And Jesus ends the chapter, and this is my favorite part. He ends it with an invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are weary laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are trying to carry the burden of your sin on your own, and I will take it from you. That's what he says. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. Come to me. If you are laden and burdened, trying to bear the weight of your own sin, come to me. That's the invitation that Jesus says, come to me. Do you know what that is? That's that moment of confession. That someone who says, I am laboring under the weight of bearing my own sin. I just can't do it anymore. Lord Jesus, please forgive me and take it from me. And you know what he does? He says, I gladly will. I will bear the burden for your sin. Then he says, take my yoke. Well, that doesn't sound too great. Actually, you're like, well, I was just freed from the burden, and now you're putting a new one on me? You're putting a yoke on me? I'm not so sure about that part, Jesus. You know what Jesus is saying is that he's using an example of a yoke. They would take two animals and yoke them together with this like wooden thing that looks like that, and they would hook in two animals. And the purpose of that was a couple of things. One, it was to unify or unite those two animals together for one common purpose, to plow. Jesus says, take on my yoke. Be united with me now for the purpose of what? Well, now you're going to share in the work. You're going to now spread this message to everyone. He says, learn from me. Learn from me. That's sanctification. That's becoming more like him. So we see right in that passage, come to me, confess your sin and come to me, give me your burden and I will take it on. I forgive you. And then learn from me, sanctification, become more like me. That was the thing. In a yoke situation, they would take a stronger animal and a weaker animal, and the stronger animal bears all of the weight and directs the smaller animal in the way that that animal is the weight to go, and that animal then becomes like the other one, like the stronger one. Jesus was like, give me your sin, and I'll bear the weight. Now be yoked with me, learn from me, be united with me, and become like me. Man. That's it right there. Just, just those couple of verses. We're, you know what? Everybody have a great day. <laughs> I might ruin it from here on out. I don't know. It's so simple and so pure just in those couple of verses. But since we're here, let's go ahead and jump into chapter 12. 
It says at that time, now so this is after Jesus has said all this stuff. Uh, It says at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. All right. Quick explanation about the Sabbath. This is really important because, you know, I'm not going to assume that every single person here knows what the Sabbath was or why it was put into place. The Sabbath actually, I think you could probably take it all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where it says that God is talking about how he created all things that exist, and that was every day is a Sabbath, you know, on the first day and the second day, the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth day, and then on the seventh day, it says that he rested from his work. Now, I don't want you to sit there and think that on the seventh day, he was just like, oh, man, it's hard work creating everything. I need a break. It wasn't that God had to rest. You know what he was doing was establishing uh, the idea that there is time to rest. He was giving us that example Now, it's not called Sabbath in Genesis 3. It's just as a rest from work. But ultimately, what he will do is when he speaks to the Israelites after they've left Egypt and he gives them his Ten Commandments, the fourth one is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On that day, everyone is supposed to rest from their work. He says, just like I gave you the example of like, after I was done creating everything, I rested. I want you also to do the thing. Do you understand that the Sabbath was designed by God to be a blessing to mankind? To say, uh, work, work, work. You're supposed to work, work every day. But on this day, you don't work. You rest. It's supposed to be a blessing. But he didn't say, if if you actually read through all the scripture, he doesn't say, rest, go, put your feet up, don't do anything, you know, watch TV all day. He didn't say any of that. You know what he said? Go to the temple and worship. Rest from your work, but go and worship. It was a time to grow closer in your relationship with the Lord. In fact, um, the temple work didn't stop. They did twice as many sacrifices at the temple. It was a time for worship. Now, unfortunately, what had happened is over time, the religious leaders, and then what would become the Pharisees, um, started adding to the idea of the Sabbath, saying, you know what, um, in order for us to help you all keep it and not you know, accidentally trans- transgress the Sabbath, we're just going to start to outline what it means to rest. So let us add some definitions to what it means to rest and what it means to not work, or, or work meaning bearing a burden, so you can't bear a burden, so what does that look like? Let us help you not transgress. And so they added some things. You can read through um, in the Mishnah, which is like the oral tradition of of Judaism that then was written down. Um, And in the Mishnah, it it starts to outline a lot of the things that they weren't supposed to do because it would constitute work, like tie a knot. They could not tie a knot uh, according to the Mishnah on the Sabbath day. However, there was, a, there was a caveat to this thing. Um, but if you're a woman, you can tie your girdle because that would be obscene, apparently. So they said you can tie, a woman can tie um, their girdle, but, but you can't tie any ropes or anything else. And so they were like, well, how are we going to get water? So what they would do is they would take a woman's girdle and they would tie the girdle to one end of a rope and then they would tie the other end of the girdle to a water vase so then they could lower it down into the well and bring up water in their vessel. Now, technically, they hadn't transgressed because they hadn't tied a knot in anything except for a girdle, which was allowed. 
Now, I guess my question is, how did they get the water from the well to their house? Because they weren't allowed to carry anything except for on the backs of their hands or in their, on their foot or in the hem of their shirt or anything in their hands heavier than two dried figs. I just imagine like, people just walking around with, I'm not transgressing. So they started what they think, thought was helps began to be burdens that they were laying on these people because then what would happen, it was become a way for someone who was very pious to say, well, I don't do any work, but see, you're carrying this or you're doing that and you're not allowed to do that. You're transgressing something that the Lord had designed to be a blessing for them. A day off had become a burden that was laid on them. So it is this, this day that Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and it says, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And uh, simply said that is as they're walking through, they would kind of pull the wheat up so the kernels would be in their hand. And the kernels of wheat, they have this um, chaff. Um, so it's like a, like a husk. And so they would go like this, and it would roll the chaff off of it, and they go, and then they're left with kernels of wheat, and then just eat it as they would go. Now, they weren't doing anything illegal. It was actually allowed. In Deuteronomy, the, the law said, if you own a field of wheat or corn or whatever it is, don't harvest the corners or the edges. Leave it for those who need to come and glean, who don't have anything. And so it was okay. It was lawful for them to come and pick wheat and eat as they walked along. They couldn't harvest it and say, oh, I'm going to take this wheat home with me for later, but they could get some in their hand and eat it as they went along. And so they weren't doing anything illegal technically. Now it says, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look at your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. <clears throat> well, first of all, they weren't breaking the law because they weren't stealing the wheat. So what is it that the Pharisees are talking about? And by the way, what are the Pharisees doing there? Anybody ever ask yourself that? Why are they there? What are they just like following Jesus and his disciples? <clears throat> They're watching. They're looking for something. And so he says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? Jesus is going to say this a couple of times, have you not read? Now this is going to tick them off because the Pharisees were the guys that knew the word of God inside of They prided themselves on the fact that they were the ones who knew the word. So when this guy, Jesus, this rebellious rabbi comes along and says, have you not read? They're like, of course we have. We've read everything. We know it all by heart. And he says, have you not read? Or basically he's saying, if you really knew the word, you would know this. That when David was hungry, he and those who were with him, he entered the house of, the, of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And so he reminds them of a story that's recorded in 1 Samuel. When David is very young, he's running away from King Saul, who's trying to kill him at this point. And he runs away, he and some guys that go with him, and he comes to the synagogue and every Sabbath day, they would replace 12 loaves of bread. Each loaf was representing one of the 12 tribes. They would replace the bread, had to be on a table in the tabernacle um, all week as a representation of the people before the presence of God. That's the showbread. And it was probably just these round, flat loaves of bread stacked up like this, 12 of them. And they would remain there all week. And then at the end of the week, they would remove, they would actually not remove them. They would bake new ones. 
And then they would come over and they would replace the old ones with the new ones. And then they would take the old ones, the seven-day-old loaves, and then the priests were allowed to eat that bread. And that was the only person that was allowed to eat those bread, according to the law of Moses. Now, David and his guys show up and they're like, to Abimelech, Abimelech, Abimelech? Something, I think that was his name, um, who was the priest in the, tab- in the tabernacle. And David came up and he said, do you have anything to eat? We're starving. And the priest said, all I have is the showbread. And so David was like, we'll take that. And they're like, okay. And he gives them the showbread because they had dire physical need. They were starving. And this is what Jesus is saying is that the human need trumps ceremonious ritual. Or he's saying um, it's the spirit of the law that's important, not the letter of the law. So if there is human need, that takes precedence over trying to stick to the letter of the law, which is what they were trying to stick to. And so Jesus says, don't you remember that when David was hungry, he came in and he ate the showbread, even though he wasn't supposed to, God allowed it to be given to him because they had human need? Then he says, or have you not read in the law? Again, have you not read? They're just like, yes, we have. In the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. Okay, this is crazy, but this is what would happen. Everybody on the Sabbath, they could not do any work or bear any burden or do anything except the priests not only had to work on the Sabbath, they had to work twice as hard because it says on the Sabbath, you had to bring twice the offering that you would normally bring. Now, in your mind, maybe when you think about the priests in the temple, you think of, you know, like, you know, I don't know what you think, smaller, demure, kind of skinny guys. If you were a priest at this time, you were basically a first century butcher because you were cutting apart and pulling apart. Like, imagine someone brings in an ox and you've got to now butcher the ox by hand and then take that ox and throw it up onto the fire that was burning. I'm sure that, first of all, this was hard, sweaty work. But these guys were probably pretty good-sized guys. I mean, how many times do you have to lift lift half an ox before you start? You should work that in to your... (laughs) Today we're going to work on ox lifting. Okay, with your legs, with your legs. (laughs) So Jesus says, you know what? Because temple work was necessary, they were okay in doing that work, but he's reminding them, it's like, you cannot go by the strict letter of the law in every single thing. He's saying, you're trying to, you're throwing people on the altar of legalism rather than to extend mercy, which is what he's going to say to them. (sighs) He says to these Pharisees, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple, Oh man, he is really tweaking their noodle right now because listen, that they loved the temple. They loved the temple. They would swear by the temple. The temple was so important to them. And Jesus says, there's one here now that's greater than the temple. And this is a beautiful gaspy moment. So I'm going to say that and you guys all gasp because this is what would happen. He says, yeah, I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. Yes. Jesus saw well beyond the building, didn't he? In fact, later on in John's gospel, Jesus will say to them, 
tear down this temple in three days, and, and tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. And they were like, it took our fathers 46 years to build this temple, and you'll say that you'll raise it up in three days. It says, but Jesus was speaking of himself. He was saying, tear down this temple. Jesus was saying, I'm greater than the temple, and you can tear this temple down, and I'll raise it up again in three days. You know, one part, he's walking with his disciples, and they go, like, Rabbi, look at this amazing temple. And he's like, no, look here at this amazing temple. This is where you're going to worship. This is um, the one that will be precious to you, not the building. There's this great quote here by Matthew Henry. I, don't, I, I really like his commentaries from like the 1600s. But he says this, Christ in the wheat field was greater than the temple, for in him dwelt not the presence of God symbolically, but all of the fullness of God bodily. Jesus in the wheat field was greater than the temple because the temple only had the symbolic presence of God. Jesus was the presence of God in bodily form right there. And so he says, I'm greater than that building. But he says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. As they had added their own additional applications to God's law in order to help those less pious keep from transgressing it. But it had become a weight no one could bear. And Jesus said, you are sacrificing each other on the altar of legalism but rather let mercy guide any application of God's law. You know, we plead for mercy from God on our own behalf, but we are so slow to extend mercy to those in our lives. Is that right? We plead, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. But when someone comes to you and they need mercy, we're really slow. We're, we're honestly, guys, we're more like the Pharisees a lot of times. We're like, well, let's see what the letter of the law says. I'm going to have to throw you up there on the altar of legalism for a little while. And God says, I, de I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says, for this, oh man, he's really giving it to him. Verse 8, for the son of man is even over the Sabbath. <gasps> yeah, I mean, they'd be like, <laughs> you know, like in the cartoons where the draw goes down and their eyes are like, you know, they're just like, I, 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 I don't even know what to say. You're, you're saying that you're even Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> the Sabbath was for man's rest from work. You know what Jesus says here? And I love this part. I love this part. Jesus says, you know what? I'm the Sabbath. Didn't he just say, chapter 10, verse 28, come to me if you're laden and burdened and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Jesus says, I'm the Sabbath now. Your rest is in me. I can't tell you how many times, how many times I've heard people say to me, Pastor, you work on Sunday. When's your Sabbath? When's your Sabbath day? And in the past, I've been like, well, I, I try to take off Mondays. I'm gonna, you know what it is? It's not a day. Sabbath is not a day. Sabbath is a who. My Sabbath is a who. And my Sabbath is Jesus. 
I can rest in Jesus all the time. And I still work. You all still work. You do something. I'm sure some of you do something. But you don't have to say, well, no, I, I can't do anything on Saturday. No, I can't do any work on Sunday. Jesus is saying, I'm your rest. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm your rest now. Don't get hung up on a day. Get hung up on a person. <clears throat> now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogues. <laughs> I love that Jesus is like, look, I'm just going to blow your minds I'm going to really tick you off, and then I'm going to your building for church. He was on his way there anyway. I think he was probably going to church that morning, and he was just ran into the Pharisees who were coincidentally out in the green field watching him, and he, he dropped all this on them, and then he said, I'll see you in there. And so then he goes in. Now, they're really ticked off. You can see this, like they're so angry. It's not like they sat there and like, huh, you know, he brought up some really good points that maybe we should consider. Um, and let's talk about it later and maybe pray on it and then we'll get back to him. No, they're really mad because they go into the synagogue and it says, behold, there was a man who had a withered hand and they, the Pharisees, asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? that they might accuse him. You see, they don't really want to know. They're not curious to know. They're trying to find something to accuse him of. In fact, a lot of people believe that he was like, they intentionally said, oh, what about this man with the withered hand? Now, look, listen. They say to him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You know, before Jesus shows up, it's not like healings were just happening every day. Like the, so many healings on a regular daily basis that they had to be like, okay, no healings on Sabbath. That's crazy for them to even say, is it lawful for healings to happen? There weren't healings going on on any regular basis at this point. Remember until John the Baptist shows up, God didn't really speak to them for 400 years. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and starts doing these miraculous things. They're like, well, is it, you know, what, is it lawful to heal? And they're trying to trap him. Do you know what else I see here? They knew that Jesus would see this man and have compassion on him and most likely heal him. And they were using his own compassion against him to try and trap him. That's sick. That's really sick. But... Jesus helps this man even though he knows there will be a cost to him. Oh, man, what if we lived like that? What if we lived in a way that was like Jesus, where we would help somebody even if we suspected there would be some cost to us? I think we would turn the world upside down, wouldn't we? Isn't that what was said of the disciples? They're turning the world upside down. In fact, you know, someone said to me, shouldn't I have said they're turning the world right side up again? <laughs> then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay a hold of it and lift it out? He's not really asking them. What he's saying is, if your sheep fell into a hole on the Sabbath, you would pull it out of the hole. They were allowed to do that. If someone was injured, they were allowed to, let's say, stop the bleeding, but they couldn't address the wound until after the Sabbath. 
right? So like if you had a cut, they might put a Band-Aid on it, but they couldn't put any medicine on the wound or the Band-Aid until the next day. They could just do just enough to sustain life, but they couldn't really do anything to help somebody live or who had a wound or some issue like that. That, that just seems crazy to me. It's like, well, I can lift my lamb out of the pit, but if he's got like a broken limb or anything, I can't address it until tomorrow. So like, where's the rationale? Like lifting them out of the pit. So why not just leave them in the pit then? How is, how is one better than the other? They're just rationalizing their, their actions. So Jesus says, if you have a lamb and it falls into a pit, you're going to go and get that lamb out of the pit, aren't you? And I guess they're all sitting there going, you know what they would normally do? They would say nothing. They'd be like, don't answer. It's a trick. It's so funny that they would think that. You're like, he's trying to trick us because that is exactly what they're trying to do all the time. Then he says, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is, law- is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? <laughs> Jesus says, you know what? A man's life is more valuable than a sheep's life. Um, isn't it good to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. I'm assuming after the services were over because this just went out. At this time, the Pharisees know that Jesus can heal. That's why they use this man who needs healing. They're not wondering if he will heal them. They're hoping that he will so they can use it against him. And Jesus tells the man with the withered hand, stretch it out. You know, this is something that this man couldn't do because his hand was withered. But Jesus makes what was impossible for him possible. What Jesus told him to do, Jesus made possible for him to do. This is true for everything that Jesus tells us to do. Oh, I can't do it, pastor. I can't break the hold that this has on me. And then your life becomes withered in that area. We could take a lesson from this man because he stood and obeyed knowing he couldn't do it. But he trusted in Jesus' words and the result was healing and restoration. Now, what was the Pharisees' response? It says in another gospel that they were full of rage. Full of rage. This man in their congregation, with a withered hand, useless, is healed, and they're full of rage. And they go out plotting on how they will destroy him. This is a pretty pivotal moment because, you know, up until this moment, they just wanted to discredit him. They just wanted to try and find something that they could say, look what he believes. Why are you following that guy? But now they want to destroy him. They're completely disconnected from the fact that the, among them was a man who needed healing, had a withered hand, and that a miraculous 
healing happened right before their eyes. They don't celebrate the fact that this man who was one of theirs was healed. They don't embrace him and say, holy is the Lord. Praise the Lord. Look, at he's just, he's healed this man. Our friend, you know, John, I don't know, healed miraculously, completely. It says that his hand was made whole just like the other one. Completely disconnected from that. Why weren't they celebrating? Why weren't they happy about this? Well, I think it is for the simple reason that Jesus was upsetting their apple cart. They had things just the way they wanted them. And Jesus was turning it all upside down. Now, I think that's why so many people don't want anything to do with Jesus now. They're afraid that Jesus will upset their apple cart. They have things just the way they want them. And they don't want Jesus coming in and making all kinds of changes. They're afraid that he will come in and change their life. Well, guess what? He will. But that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. We want Jesus to come in and change up our lives and turn over our apple cart. Your apple cart without Jesus is just filled with rotten apples anyway. So you got to turn that thing over. Secondly, and this one really blows my mind. I don't understand this, but their response to him shows me how blinded they are to their own arrogance. They acknowledge that this guy that's standing in their presence has just done something supernatural that they'd never seen before. This man healed somebody right before our eyes of, a, of an ailment that no one else could do anything about. He has supernatural power, and in their minds, they somehow think that they will be able to overcome this man. What? This guy might as well be Superman, and you're just like, let's get him. Come on. But they're blinded by the arrogance that they think they would rationally, if they looked at it and said, this guy can do supernatural things. If they were thinking rationally, they're like, maybe we ought not to try and kill him. Maybe we probably can't. But all they can think of is, we have to destroy this. You know, after, well, we'll get to this part. I think that that is so crazy. They could be like, you know what? We're going to just destroy this guy. We don't want any of this supernatural healing going on in our, because what will happen is people will love him more than us. People will follow him and they won't follow us. In fact, that's what they said. They said, look, everyone is going to follow him and nobody will follow us anymore. They knew the scriptures. They could hear John say, he's the one that is coming to deliver us. And they're like, yeah, but we've got a good thing going here. I mean, we don't want to lose all of our power and authority. That's more important to us right now than the one who was sent to deliver us all. I was just saying it like that makes it seem like, how could they be so stupid? But that was me. I grew up in church. I grew up hearing this my entire life. And then I was just like, eh, I'm good. I got a whole... I got a whole thing here. No one was making me go to church, so I didn't go to church anymore. Just got to the point where I was like, I'm good. Life is good. I met my wife. We got married. We had two jobs. We had no kids. We were yuppies, complete yuppies. 
No kids, living near the city, two jobs, thinking life is amazing. And then God was like, all right, the only way that I'm going to break into your life is through a few tragedies, including 9-11 was one of them. And that's when it was just like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. All of a sudden, I'm starting to feel an emptiness inside that I don't know how to fill. This stuff, this job, golf, is not filling. I said golf, and some people went like, huh? No, go <laughs> golf is not a sin. It is if it's your God. Those things will not fill the hole that is shaped like Jesus in your heart. Only Jesus will fill the hole that's shaped like Jesus. It took me a while to get there. And I'm actually so happy that he was relentless in his pursuit of me. Because one day I did call out and say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died for my sins. Please forgive me. He, and he so happily did. Just like that. Changed my life. Turned over my apple cart. I'm so glad for it. It says somewhere, verse 15, it says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and a great multitude followed him and he healed them all. As if to just further drive home that point, Jesus says, you know what? Bring me everybody that needs healing on the Sabbath. Just everyone. Just bring anybody that's got it. You got a blister? Bring it. I'll take care of it. A rash. You've lost a limb. Your leper? Come, bring it. It says, and he healed all of them. <laughs> it was as if he was saying to them, I am not afraid of you. Jesus was saying, I'm greater than you. I'm not afraid of you. What are, you gonna, what are they going to do to Jesus? Kill him? They, hey, spoiler alert, that's what they did. But it didn't stick, did it? No, in fact, it was all part of God's plan. And Jesus was raised from the dead to eternal life. Amen? You know, Jesus has just said to us through the study of Matthew, he says, why do you fear those who can only take your life? There is one who is greater and he's in charge. And if you are his and someone takes your life, you are then raised to eternal life with Jesus. That's it? All right, thank you. Proverbs 29, 25 reminds us that the fear of man is a snare or a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe or protected, right? So Jesus goes out fearlessly now after being rebuked for healing on the Sabbath and heals everyone that comes to him. As if he's like, bring it. Bring it on. I can handle it. You know what? I couldn't. But he can. And so I just stand in him. Amen? <clears throat> and then he warns them not to tell anybody. <laughs> he heals everybody. And then says, don't, but don't tell anybody it was me. Like, bring me everybody that needs healing, but shh. Like, that's possible. Like, like, the guy with no leg shows up at work the next day with a leg, with two legs. <laughs> it's like, what happened? I was like, oh, I can't really talk about it. 
You know, Jesus was afraid that they were going to come and make him be the person that they wanted him to be. And he was saying, no, I need to be who the Father says I am according to the Father's schedule. And that's not now. So I'm going to have compassion on you, and I'm going to do what you need, but let's not make a big thing out of it yet. There's going to come a time when we're going to make a big thing out of it, but it's not now. We're going to do this according to God's timing. That's so hard. I wish God would do things according to my timing. Not yours. According to my timing. He doesn't. In case you didn't know, he doesn't work according to my schedule, ever. So he warned them and said, don't make it known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles, and he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Basically is saying he's coming as a gentle humble man who will not make a big deal until it is exactly the right time. And then, and I love this part, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. This is in direct opposition to how the Pharisees would operate. If a broken reed, imagine, you know what a reed is, you know, like out in the the tall grass. Um, Sometimes a reed will get bumped into and it will get, it it will bend. Right? And at that bend is like a little weak spot. That's why it's bending. That's what they're calling the bruise here. Well, uh, normally you would just say, well, this reed isn't good for anything, and you would just tear it up and throw it out. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to gently take that bruised reed, that thing that has been bruised or bent, and I'm going gent- to be gently lifting it up. He's talking about the gentleness, the gentle qualities of the Savior. Same thing with a, 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 a smoking flax. It's talking about a wick of a candle or an, a lamp, really, an oil lamp that doesn't have a flame, but it's got just a little ember, whereas a, a Pharisee might come and rip out the weed or come up and say, put it out. He's going to be like, and I'm not going to snuff out of a, a smoldering wick. In fact, you know what he does? He goes like this. And he blows on it, and he tries to reignite the flame. That's the person, the qualities that he's saying were written of him before he even came. The gentle, lowly of heart, Savior who's going to come in riding on a donkey, not on a horse of war, coming in with a message of, come to me, all of you who are bearing the weight of your own sin, and I will give you rest, and then be yoked with me, be unified with me, and learn from me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I do just thank you so much for this message this morning, the reminder of, Lord, your plan uh, uh, of salvation for us through your son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross and his resurrection. Lord, I pray against the spirit of the Pharisees in our own hearts, the legalism that sneaks in, that causes us to be able to say, well, I'm a little bit more spiritual than you because of this or that. Lord, help us to take on this this attitude that Jesus talks about of mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy, Lord, not sacrifice. That is a challenge for so many of us so often, Lord. Lord, we call out for mercy. Let us extend mercy. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, Uh, Lord, that they are still laboring under the burden of their own sin. Lord, I pray that they would today turn it over to you. Lord, that they would confess and believe that you died for their sins. 
I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. It's been preserved for us for this day. Lord, maybe tomorrow you'll take us all home. Wouldn't that be amazing? Lord, while we're here, let us be reminded of why we are still here, Lord. Let us, as we, uh, Lord, are now have even greater responsibility than John the Baptist, Lord, let us share in his work of calling people to repentance and confession so that they might be saved along with us. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.